This is IAQ Radio, Indoor Air Quality Radio, the voice of the indoor air quality industry, with your hosts, Radio Joe Hughes and the Z-Man, Cliff Zlotnick. And now, Radio Joe Hughes. Hey, wherever you're listening from, and welcome to episode 464 of IAQ Radio. It's Friday, June 16th, 2017. And this week we're coming to you live from the Violand Executive Summit in the Hall of Fame city of Canton, Ohio. Before we get started, we'd like to thank our marquee sponsors. IAQ Radio marquee sponsors are John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop. Visit them at johndon.com. That's J-O-N-D-O-N.com. Healthy Indoor Magazine, a free online digital magazine for industry professionals and consumers. Subscriptions are available at IAQ.net. Legends Environmental Insurance, the experts in insurance for environmental consultants and contractors for over 20 years at legends-enviro.com. That's legends-enviro.com. Please be sure to thank our sponsors for their support of IAQ Radio when you inquire about their services or products. And last but not least, please visit the IAQ Training Institute website for the most current dates for the training you trust at iaqtraining.com. I also want to remind listeners that we can get you continuing education credits for listening to the show. Just send me an email at joe.hughes at iaqtraining.com. We'll get you the quiz out, get those continuing ed credits for IICRC or ACAC or whomever you need them for. Let us know. Let's turn it over to the Z-Man for today's IAQ Radio trivia question. And now you can win a cool prize. It's time for the IAQ Radio Trivia Question. Be the first to correctly answer. Simply email your answer to czlotnick at cs.com. Or if listening live, just text your answer from your computer. And now, here's the Z-Man with this week's IAQ Radio Trivia Question. The answer to our last trivia question on the definition of home performance is taking an integrated approach to how homes or building systems can work together to provide a more comfortable and efficient living space. The source was Energy Star 2017. The answer was provided first by Doug Conan, Aerotech Environmental, Dayton, Ohio. Congratulations to Doug. The IQ Radio trivia question for Friday, June 16, 2017 has been sponsored by ID is a solution chemistry company creating unique solutions to odor removal, surface cleaning, and decontamination problems. Now for today's IQ Radio trivia question. In what year did the NFL Hall of Fame open in Canton, Ohio? Back to you, Joe. Okay, we're back live at the Violand Executive Summit, and we've got Chuck Violand with us, but we also have what we call the Veterans Group, Lee King, the president of After Disaster and current RIA Board of Directors member, Wes Williams, founder and president of CJB in Vancouver, British Columbia, Scott Stamper, CEO of Regency DKI, past RIA president, and Tom Laska, president of ICC Restoration, Minneapolis, Minnesota. The next generation of leaders? Chris Yonker, Production Manager, Buffalo Restoration in Bozeman, Montana. Jacqueline Carpenter, CEO, Ideal Restoration, San Francisco, California, who is also an RIA board member. Grant Nietzsche, President of SurfPro of Wheaton, Illinois. 
And last but not least, Tom McMahon, Senior Project Manager, McMahon Restoration, Chicago, Illinois. Okay, 2017 is the 30th anniversary of the Violin Management Associates, and during that time they've grown to become a leading advisory service firm in the restoration and cleaning industries. Today we're broadcasting live from their Executive Summit, one of the most well-respected and attended educational and networking events for small business professionals in the industry. We've probably got about 150 people, maybe more here, and we've got a, a group of uh, sponsors as well. We're here in the home of the Pro Football Hall of Fame, Canton, Ohio, and this year we've brought together owners, managers, current industry leaders, and I want to welcome the founder and principal of Violin Management, current president of the RIA, Chuck Violin. Hello, Chuck. Hey, Joe. Good hey, to Cliff. Good to have you on with us, Chuck. But, you know, we're going to ask the veterans, and you're somewhat of a veteran of this uh, of this industry. What do you see as the biggest changes in, in the industry over the last 25 years? Well, you're 30 years now, 30 years of working with people in the restoration industry. What, what are they dealing with with respect to changes in that industry? I think there's an awful lot. First of all, Joe and, and Cliff, thanks for joining us again. It's always a thrill to have you guys here broadcasting. Well, we appreciate you hosting us. It's, all, it's always fun and the food's good. And <laughs> <laughs> the food is good. And that hasn't changed over 30 years. Okay. Oh. Uh, no, I think really that uh, I think the competitive field is one of the biggest changes I've seen. Competitive, competitive field. Yeah, I think it's become much more competitive, much more difficult, or a challenge, I should say, to make um, to maintain margins and to compete. And that's not necessarily bad. I just think that you just have to be a sharper business person if you're going to compete. All right. Well, thank you, Chuck. Always a pleasure being here. Let's get to our, our group here. What do you think, Cliff? You want to start off? Sure. Um, maybe we would start with. With, with Scott, you know, over the past, or how many years have you been in, Scott? Solely restoration work. I've been doing it for 18 years. Okay. I've been in the business for 25. Okay, so over this 18 to 25 year span, what have been the biggest changes that, that you've seen? One of the, and I'll key off of what Chuck said about, you know, being competitive and, and margins and being a smart business person is that the playing field has changed. No longer do I meet with an adjuster, we shake a hand, and we come up with a price that we think is fair. And I think that during that time frame, myself, my estimators could go into a house and knew how to measure a house, knew how long it was going to clean, to, how long it was going to take to clean a two by four, how long it was going to do this. In, in the age of unit pricing, we have gone to a level playing field that is not a level playing field. Each company has different levels of employees, has different levels of expertise, but we're all being paid via the unit cost. It's the same for all of us. So it gives a challenge as a new business owner. You know, you look at it from a lean and mean model. Uh, in order to remain competitive, you have to be lean. You have to figure out how to do things quicker, faster, better. And um, it's a challenge. You know, particularly switching from an older company, used to doing it in a certain way, You've always got to be changing. So I think uh, in this playing field, it's, it's been a lot of learning. Well, one, one follow-up, are you yeah. still operating in multiple markets? Yes, I'm in multiple markets. And each market's 100% different. Florida operations 100% differ from uh, my Detroit operations. Right, let's, let's bring in uh, Lee, uh, Lee King, president after disaster. You're, you're on the RIA board of directors. I think you heard what Scott and, and Chuck said. Um, and I want to follow up on something Scott said with respect to the pricing. Is Do you have any jobs that don't follow a strict 
pricing, like per, I guess it's Xactimate or something like that? Or does, does that exist anymore? Uh, we do, actually, in our large loss division. We use a time and materials or a rate and materials format that a lot of people refer to. Um, and those are generally applicable in a typically a larger job, but more so a job that uh, the scope of work is clearly undefinable, uh, at least com being completely verifiable from the first day, um, and is very subject to change. So uh, do you bid against other people on those jobs ever, or is it? Sometimes we do. Sometimes a we lot do. of times we, we're engaged. We have uh, agreements with uh, contingency plans with some institutions and universities and larger commercial clients uh, you where those rates are negotiated up front, where we have a, an open. Oh, you have an up, you're ready, okay. So, uh, and a lot of smart business owners have that kind of arrangement where someone is ready to come in in case of, a, you know, whatever, a hurricane or fire or flood, whatever. Would you like to add anything to what uh, Chuck and Scott said with respect to changes? Of, you're one of the veterans over the last 25, I don't know, 25, 30 years you've been doing this? Uh, 25 in the restoration, 35 in business. What, what else has changed? Uh, what Scott said is just spot on with its accuracy. The only thing I would add is we seem hand-in-hand uh, -hand with that issue of being uh, very competitive is the challenge of the current uh, employee technician and locating ones that are really willing to work. We have a lot of people that come in, and overtime sounds like a great thing on payday, but when it's 3 o'clock, in the morning on a holiday and the temperature is five degrees, uh, it's not quite that fun. Mm -hmm. And we find uh, the difference is almost in five-year increments. I mean, 25 years ago, it was much different and much easier to find people that were willing to work. And the challenge, uh, particularly it seems like with the millennials, is, is a real challenge. Interesting. I, I've got a follow-up. Yeah, yesterday I had the opportunity to uh, meet one of the sponsors uh, of the event in their uh, a specialized employment uh, recruiting company, and he and I were working as a team together, so Justin and I got to talk, and I asked him what was the most difficult person to, to find, where they have the most difficulty, and it's water tech. It's like they can't, you know, they, they need way more water techs than they can find. And one of the interesting things is in the discussion in the room, they were talking like, well, what are the requirements of this water technician? They kind of talked about, you know, the salary that this guy's going to probably start at maybe, you know, in the United States, maybe $15 an hour or whatever somewhere, you know, it might be the starting. And that they were looking for someone who was 25 to 35 years of age in order to hire. Like they wouldn't even consider anyone under the age of 25 Someone in the room said, well, people under the age of 25 don't have any life experience and so on and so forth. So uh, I just thought that I would have had that. Well, let's, let's go to our next veteran here, uh, Wes Williams. Wes, anything? Wes, okay, Wes, <laughs> 25 years, right, in the business. Yes. But you're up in Canada, mm -hmm. is that accurate? Yes. Do you see the same kind of issues over that time span as the people here that spoke from the United States? Yes, we see a, 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 a almost a mirror image with respect to millennials. What I find with millennials, you need to paint a picture in front of them, explain to them how they're saving the world by extracting water out of a basement. And that's probably our best uh, effective message that we can get to them and uh, get them motivated 
at 0200 and that extra hundred dollars for getting out of bed and get them going on a site and helping that, them uh, with their crews and getting things done very early in the morning. You know, what's, what's interesting is back to this discussion that we were having yesterday, one of the issues I think is how they position it. You know, because if you call it a water deck, it doesn't sound really exciting. And, you know, th this thing of saving the world or this thing of being uh, the EMT that's, you know, in the ambulance and the excitement and the adrenaline and so on and so forth, I, I think relate. I know that related more to me, you know, when I was younger and, you know, it was the thrill of chase and, uh, you know, I, I enjoy doing it. And I think today if you say, well, you know, you're a water tech, then I think it's somewhat limiting. So I think they need to change the vocabulary of what they what they call that person. Well, let's get our last veteran in here. We've got Tom Laska, president of ICC Restoration, Minneapolis, Minnesota. A lot of cold climate guys up here. Uh, Tom, any any other changes over the last 25, 30 years that, that uh, the other folks didn't touch on that you'd like to mention? Uh, no, I agree with most. I, I think uh, one of the challenges that I see and, and we've had some discussion on is that again, coming back to our water technicians, is our industry is, is wanting more out of them. So uh, when I was young in business, the water technician was exactly that. You know, suck up some water, play some drying equipment, you know, and, and you know, check with a meter to make sure it's dry. Um, now the pressure of the industry wants everybody really educated um, to the point where you're extracting the water, you're putting science behind it, you're, you're there, and they're requiring that the science matches what's going on. So uh, the water technician, again, um, today in our world is, is more of an advanced person. And so what, happen, what we see all too often when there's the labor shortage that we feel we have is that we have to advance our water technicians so fast that now they want to go do something else inside the company. They don't want to stay at that level. We're just advancing them so fast and not being able to replace them right away. Interesting. Do you think that the law, second law of thermodynamics has gotten more complicated over time, or do you think it's kind of remained the same? You know, <laughs> but I think the industry has gotten a lot more complicated. I think we add this complication. You know, we come up with this, you know, new equipment. It's it's newest, therefore it's better. Therefore, early adopters adopt it, and then it becomes the industry standard. And I think oftentimes, you know, you might not go back and why are we doing this? Is this logical? Does does this make sense? Um, you might have overcomplicated. No, I think I, I definitely. And there's some defense right now as an add-on is that with water techs, I mean, you're now seeing where products like uh, are coming out that tell you how many dehumidifiers, how many fans, and, if, and that's what is being measured against. So I don't, I'm not quite sure if they're trying to dumb down the industry by saying you can only do this and this, and that's all that you can put in the situation. But a lot of, a lot of the people we submit our invoices to, our estimates to, are now using programs that are telling you what is supposed to be in there. So it's, it's getting challenging, because I do think we overcomplicated it. And we did it on purpose, I think. We did do it on purpose. Seems like you have a dichotomy. On one respect, you're going from being professional services to a commodity almost. And then on the other side, with what Tom was saying, the, the people you hire, though, are being expected to do more, and they're not just 
you know, a widget maker or whatever the case may be. They've got to think. They've got to understand a little bit about science and thermodynamics and trying. Well, well I mean, you know, the amazing thing is how many years have you been doing this? 28 years. Okay. Let me ask you a question. 28 years ago, after a water loss, did you get the building dry? Yes. Okay. Absolutely. Okay, so I think that proves the point. You know, I think we were getting them dry then, and you know, sometimes all it took was opening the windows, but you know, not often. Uh, you know, I think you know, ever since Lloyd, you know, invented the air mover, uh, and you know, we paired it with the humidifiers. I think we've been able to get them dry. But, you know, I think, yeah, you know, I think it's the sphere. It's, you know, it, it, and you kind of look at mold, and it's been pretty much the same way. You know, it's like. No one's really worried about the bacteria in the sewage. It's the mold that's going to kill you, you know, black mold. <laughs> you know, we just need to get things backwards. You're right. No, we, 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 get it, we get it backwards. It's true. Let's get some of our next generation of leaders in here. Let's let's start with uh, Chris Yanker. All right. Chris, okay, over there, Chris. Um, what we wanted to ask is Cliff, Cliff came up with some questions. The first one is if your company had an opportunity to bid on a, oh, by the way, Chris is Montana. With, uh, Montana, out of Montana, okay. And Chris is product, production manager for Buffalo Restoration, not in Buffalo, New York, in Bozeman, Montana, all right? But anyway, if, uh, if your company had the opportunity to bid on a quarter of a million dollar structural drying project in a school, would you be excited about that? What would the you know would you want to do that? Is your company prepared to do a large job like that? Yes, sir. Yeah, it's a very desirable project for any mitigation company. Okay. And the follow-up question is: Would your reaction be different if it was a smoke damage cleaning project of the same magnitude in the same place? I think our reaction to the you know the job would be different. Um, you know, we just see that there's a lot of KPIs around mitigation and there's a lot of technology around that. And I think that, um, you know, everybody looks at cleaning a little bit different and it's it's not quite as quantifiable in a lot of ways. So I know a lot of people try to steer away from it, but I think our approach would be different. But we would definitely be excited to take on that project because uh, I think it's, a, it's an area that could use a little bit more focus of us just being able to focus on... <coughs> How are we going to take care of that with KPIs as well? Because uh, we would definitely be excited to do it, but it's a little bit more of a challenge because there's some more unknowns there. And I think we want to get some other discussions. Yeah, you know, Jacqueline, you know, kind of same question. Okay, we've got Jacqueline Carter, member, CEO, Ideal Restoration, San Francisco, California. Go for it, Jacqueline. Uh, if we got a call for a quarter million dollar water loss. Well, we have the Calvary out there immediately, <laughs> no problem. We know those a lot. Uh, if it were a fire job, I would be uh, less excited. Having that much labor on a project, it can be a pain in the butt. And uh, you have some other pieces that might get away from you, like quality of work when you're done, um, maybe still any residual odors, any possible go-backs. Uh, we would take both of them, but I'm much more excited about it. A water loss. What about you, Grant? So I'm in Illinois. Uh, so to, to answer the school, I'm assuming we're talking about a public school here. Yeah, we have prevailing wage in our state. So okay. when we look at that, to comparing the two jobs, a water job, you, you at least have kind of some uh, assistance with that equipment as far as you know your 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 billing goes. When you start talking about strictly labor on a prevailing wage job, 
you know, on a fire, it's going to be very, very heavy. You're going to hope to get paid some at some point in time. And the way we bill that, um, you know, is, is, is traditionally about 1.6 times whatever we're paying out. So by the time you look at what your profit margin on that after paying, you know, all, all the your, your fees associated with your people, I mean, you're really looking at like a 25% margin. So the question on that fire job is, do I want to be out of pocket how many, you know, maybe $100,000? How long do I want to wait to pay that bill? Or how long is it going to take to get paid on that job? So there are some more questions that go into that fire loss. I mean, it's more complicated uh, than strictly just, hey, this is a nice job, let's go do it. Uh, I understand that. And I think, I think that's one of the things that kind of changed in the industry. That was just so everybody, that's Grant Nietzsche, President Surf Pro of Wheaton, Illinois. Let's get Tom McMahon in on that. Tom? Uh, I kind of agree with where everybody else is going. The water loss would be extremely excited about. Um, the fire, we would definitely take it. Um, it's a lot more labor intensive. Uh, your margins aren't as high. Um, but I don't think there would be any question whether or not we would take it. Okay. Are there any of the, the, the newer folks that would not take it? I think you. I mean, we've done it. We. I understand, but uh, so everyone, everyone still a thumbs up. Okay. All right. Okay. Great. Uh, the follow-up question to, to uh, I guess, to everyone here: Would you say that fire damage restoration is becoming a lost art? If so, why or why not? Start with Scott Stamper. Well, back in the day when Cliff had his school going, it was fantastic because. I could send a technician, a project manager, supervisor, they'd go for a week, I think it was a week or three or four days, and they had hands-on, they actually cleaned fire, they came back with a pretty good understanding of what it was to remove particulate off a, off a surface in order to remove odor and to uh, you know prep it for whatever you're going to do. My problem is, is I walk into too many structures now where I think everyone thinks that a uh, shellac is going to fix everything. And I don't know if it's complacency. I don't know if in our marketplace a lot of general contractors decided, hey, we can do fire. Um, and it's one of those things. You get into an attic. There's particulate everywhere. A lot of adjusters and uh, you know consultants want to argue that that needs to be cleaned. And to me, I was always taught, and I was taught by Marty King to begin with, and then, you know, knowing Cliff and others, is that the only time you would not clean something is, A, if it's structurally unsound and you had to remove it, or B, if it was in an area you physically could not get to. It was going to cost you more money to dismantle everything. Uh, you could use some alternative methods. But, uh, you know, the art of cleaning, uh, I, I don't think it's is is for lack of a term, it's not, as, it's not as sexy as, you know, putting in a fan. And I think that there are ways that our industry needs to show that, yes, we do have specialized abilities. It's not just about us throwing a dehumidifier in a fan anymore. Is that, uh, there's things that we, it's an art, it's a science, it's a, uh, it's a trait. You know, the sexiness of putting in the fan brings back that Marilyn Monroe where she's over top. <laughs> yeah, I agree. Yeah. Getting and going in and using uh, uh, ways to remove particulate, right. starting with the least intrusive to the most, uh, is is not really. It's 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 labor. It is a intense process, but it is something that is must be done, should be done, and is too often left out. What about you, Lee? What do you think? Uh, I agree with everything Scott said. It, it's extremely labor-intensive. It, 
I, I believe the trend in the industry away from cleaning is at least to some degree a result of downward price pressure uh, to find a more efficient way. And we get right down to it, there's just not really a more efficient way to clean something. I mean, you know, you may have better cleaning solutions, but there's nothing that is going to replace manual manipulation of a cleaning product, and, and that's what is going to result. The reason that uh, we find challenges in that is because we are emphatic about not getting callbacks for odor problems. And generally, the, the manual cleaning is followed up with uh, some kind of a sealant, uh, at least a deodorizing agent, but is never supplemented. All right, well, let me ask you a follow-up question. Okay, so what's really, what's really the difference in doing a fire cleanup or doing a mold remediation cleanup where you know, you've had to do a lot of you know, demolition and there's a lot of airborne particulate? I mean, would, would you do that job? Oh, certainly. I mean, I would do them both, but one is looked at as being hazardous to your health. The other one, oh, it's just, uh, it's just, uh, you know, char particulate, and it's no big deal. And and it's, it's the same theory as your bacteria in Category Three. I mean, what residual are you leaving behind? It's taken two different ways. Okay. Um, get to Wes. Um, Wes, it sounds yeah. to me I'm kind of I'm not I'm not as experienced in this as you guys are, but I'm hearing on the one hand that. Um, Cleaning after a fire is more labor intensive, and on the other hand, I'm hearing from some of the veterans and all the all the up, you know the the new leadership coming in that um, finding good employees is getting tougher all the time. So it sounds like you're getting a double whammy on these fire jobs. You know, 25 years ago, uh, the restoration industry explained and dictated a lot of the actions that were going on on site. Today, it's reversed. You've got the insurance industry now seemingly wanting to be the professionals in this area and dictating exactly what work is going to go on a site and writing specific specifications accordingly. Uh, this will, of course, dictate a lot of the price um, and our approach. And in that approach, we have to determine whether we're going to tear out the building material more effectively than to cover it up or clean it, and these decisions have to be based on the prices that were given by that carrier. All right, Cliff, um, I, I think going back to the toxicity issue, you know, it, it's just always bothered me that people have overemphasized the potential health hazards of mold and don't, don't know the health hazards of fire-related particulate. I mean, you know, there's a lot of stuff there. And there's dioxins, there's furans. You know, you're talking about, uh, you know, saving the world by sucking up water. I, I think you're doing more to save the world by, you know, decontaminating in it, an interior of a home or a baby's going to grow up and you know, people are going to raise their family for the next uh, for the next 20 years. Would you guys think differently if you got, like, asbestos uh, remediation rates in order to do it or hazardous pay and or you know higher labor rates in order to do it that took into account the hazard that you're dealing 
Absolutely. Oh, it would make it a lot easier. I mean, that, that's, that's, the, that's the one problem is the delivery is too low. <coughs> um, if, if, you know, like for us, if, if we come onto a fire, we'll assume asbestos and legs, so everyone's in a respirator. Um, so we can we can work like heck until we get that figured out. Um, but once the respirators come off, we're back down to a lower labor rate. So uh, if we can, I mean, the problem is, you mentioned, I'd like to, scenario you put out there because mold got such a rap for being very hazardous to people, but but you've got people in their homes per se who've been exposed to this, but no no homeowner would ever sit in a long time in a you know, a soot area with char and be exposed to it enough to have a problem. And so I don't think it would ever evolve to a point where people would actually be able to prove it unless they just looked at our guys and to test on them, I don't know. Yeah, what, what kind of brought it up was a consulting project that I ended up, you know, recently getting involved with where they, they did some testing at home. And what they found was dioxin and furan. And I just did some Googling on it, and I looked at World Trade Center, and uh, I, I Googled dioxin and furan. They cleaned thousands of buildings around the World Trade Center because there was residue in these buildings. It was, it's carcinogenic. It's, it's, it's some of the, the most dangerous substances on Earth, you know, are, are, are fire-related. I think that, you know, for years we've just been unappreciated. You know, we've gone in there. and uh, I think in the old days we used to get pretty good money to do it, and, and it was okay. But, uh, you, know, it, you know, it's not made surface, you know. And I know no, it's not. And, Yes, sir. Tom, let's go to Tom Lasker, then we're going to break. Uh, just, I, I wanted to add in there that that I, I'm glad we're having this discussion because a lot of our projects um, now we've introduced uh, industrial hygienists into the mix um, from fires because what we've noted is that soot and ash is actually being left in wall cavities, um, especially in some of the older built homes. Um, so we, we've gone to that because, again, we do a lot of multifamily properties where we don't want to have our clients have liability against the families growing up, the babies growing up, because there was ash, you know, left inside a wall cavity where, you know, maybe the carrier just didn't feel like that wall cavity needed to be opened up. So we've really kind of, again, where I felt like the industry is almost maturing again um, outside of mold is let's get back to ash where it is, you know, very carcinogenic and, and put science back in place again so that it isn't a guessing game. It's There's ash in that wall cavity. That wall cavity needs to be opened up. So let's open it up. Let's physically clean it. Let's seal it so that we know at the end of the day, when testing goes, we have a safe property for a, a family to move back into. I, I think part of your problem is that I don't know that there's good research on whether or not leaving that behind causes health issues or not. And that's part of the problem. You're kind of dealing with an unknown to some degree, as I understand it. but. Before we get back into that, I want to get some of the uh, next generation folks to talk a little more in the second half. We're going to break and thank our sponsors. We'll be right back with the second half of our uh, Violand Executive Summit Roundtable. IAQ Radio would like to thank our association sponsors. The Indoor Air Quality Association, a nonprofit multidisciplinary organization dedicated to promoting the exchange of indoor environmental information through education and research. Visit them at iaqa.org. 
Particles Plus, engineers and manufacturers feature rich particle counters, air quality monitoring, instrumentation, and vacuum pump technology. ParticlesPlus.com. Count on us. Gray Wolf Sensing Solutions, who use advanced sensor software technology and embedded computers to provide superior environmental test instrumentation. Visit them. WolfSense.com. IAQ marquee sponsors are... John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop. Visit them at johndon.com. That's J-O-N-D-O-N.com. Healthy Indoor Magazine, a free online digital magazine for industry professionals and consumers. Subscriptions are available at iaq.net. Legends Environmental Insurance, the experts in insurance for environmental consultants and contractors for over 20 years. Legends-enviro.com. That's legends-enviro.com. Well, I wish you would have been here with us at halftime. That led to quite a discussion here around the round table, but uh, we're going to have to move on. Cliff, I want to send it over to you. Let's see. We've got some of the uh, next generation. I think you've got a question for them. Should we start? I want to get back to... I, I, I think before we go to next gen, I, I want the, uh, the older generation to con- con- comment on, on this first because I think... There may be a, there may be a different approach. Uh, I'm going to just throw this out there. Um, what can your company do better than the competition? And I want you to think about it honestly, you know, because we've we've kind of I mean, the training's the same in the industry. The equipment that people use are the same. You know, the the meters are the same. Uh, you know, customer service. Uh, you know what? Really, what can you do better or different? Let's get one of the veterans up here. What do you think, Wes? Maybe one of the things I would do is uh, help the our customers meet their objectives in their uh, goals in their job. So each uh, take a staff adjuster, for example, they have to cover a certain amount of um, claims per month and exactly. How they handle them, if they're handled efficiently, and then if they get, um, you know, they'll have reviews on these files, and how the review goes is directly connected to how they get paid. And I think if we help them meet their objectives in their job, then we will be assisting them in doing everything we can to help them in their job. Okay, I think we've done a couple different things. I think that as I've gotten a little more mature. Um, I'm not looking for. It's, this is a marathon. It's not a. It's not a sprint. Is that I want my company to be around for years to come. So I look at the industry and our clients as just that clients. And rather than trying to shove what I want down in their round hole, put my square peg in a round hole there, is that I, I actually like to discuss a concierge approach. What can I do to help you? And then. Then I try to help with my services. In addition to that, we really do look for better technology. But the technology, I'm not looking to increase the price. I'm looking to try to get more efficient so that I can do the same but better job in differentiating myself against competition. And I think that's the key, is that technology tends everybody thinks can increase the price. Well, technology seems to me that should make things more efficient, better, and you create a better product and should have downward pressure. I'm not for downward pressure on everything. I'd like to make a living. But when Grant says, you know, 25% on a job, 
most of the trees would fall over to that. But what we're not saying is that we don't get that fire job every single day. So we have to have people trained, ready to go, that I'm not paying for. So that 25% is on a, a time frame, a moment in time. It is not over a consistent year. So we have to be very careful when we throw around our percentages is that that is just on a three or four day job that you might not have another one like that for eight months, but you have all the equipment, labor, and training to do that. And you still got to get paid. That's another question. Uh, for us uh, in San Francisco doing most of the commercial work, for years, whenever we onboard a new client, uh, and we do a lot of homework on them before we choose to engage with them, uh, one of the main questions we ask is what, what do you hate about the current restoration company that you're using? And I would say that 90% of the time, the answer has been communication. So about five years ago, we tried to bottle this thing called communication and actually sell it now as a product as part of our package. And what we experience is that our clients, these property management, facility management people, they've got their tenants screaming at them, they've got their boss yelling at them, and they're getting approached from all different directions. And if they don't have good, quick, solid answers, uh, they they look pretty bad, and uh, so that's how, what we sell is this package around communication, and we go as far as custom fitting to their needs in the tempo, timing, um, how they like it done, all sorts. Um, it's complicated for us in house because it's almost like these special colored M and M's per se per client, but it works. Anybody else doing something similar? Good, Paul, Paul McMahon. For a lot of these guys, uh, experience is one thing. Um, you mentioned training. Training will only take you so far, I guess. Um, these guys, I'm second generation, so my dad. A lot of these guys in this room have already seen a lot of the issues where a lot of our competition nowadays uh, is new companies that haven't seen what we're dealing with or any of the issues that arise on the job. That's a good point. Sal, anyone else? You know, I think what we... Focus. We consider ourselves our own competition, and we're always constantly trying to improve ourselves. And, and we've talked a lot about how smart we are, but where we're really focusing on is how much we care, putting the heart back into taking care of our employees, taking care of our customers, taking care of the adjusters. And, you know, nobody, like they say, they don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. And, um, you know, that's how we try to differentiate ourselves and, and attract new employees as well. And, take care of the millennials because we can tell them how smart we are and how fast we want them to work, but if they don't know how much we care about them and take care of them, then they don't really care about us. They don't need us. That's Chris Yanker. That's well said. And and why? You want to go to the next? Yeah, I, I do, Joe. Uh, unless, okay. Well, I want to I want to get the older guys, the, 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 uh, the veterans, excuse uh, me, the veterans, <laughs> uh, the veterans <laughs> please. Uh, those if you would, uh, what little piece of advice would you give one of the uh, one of the up and comers here, one of the next generation of leaders? Uh, let's start with Lee. Uh, my main suggestion would be establish really well thought out, very clear and concise, and easily understandable procedures, and implement them at all levels of the company: finance, marketing, operations. Uh, train and train and train and hammer that point home and schedule weekly or at least uh, bi-weekly meetings or I guess bi-monthly meetings or meeting every two weeks mm -hmm. and pick a subject and just continue to hammer that those points home 
every opportunity that you have. I think it's good advice for anybody in any business, actually, you know, to have good standard operating procedures that people can follow. And then Cliff was talking about the second law of thermodynamics. I don't remember what that is, but I know one of them is entropy. Uh, and one of the laws, I think, is that right? Well, I mean, you know, it, it, it's you know, how things dry and how things get wet. You know, it's kind of related to this, you know, second law of thermodynamics. It, it just hasn't changed. And, you know, it, it's just we make... My head wants to explode every time I just see this stuff being made way more complicated. The thing that, the thing that, strikes, me is, the thing that strikes me in operations is, I don't remember which law of thermodynamics is entropy, but things tend to, they don't go from the state of chaos to order. They go from the state of order to chaos. And without good procedures in place, we are living proof of, uh, of entropy on a daily basis. And we have to just... You know, Continue to hammer that point. I right, get Wes Williams in, founder of uh, CJB Vancouver. What 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 advice would you give to the folks that are coming into the industry? We'll be taking our our spots. You know uh, what you want to do is develop a uh, culture in, in your company and uh, almost uh, develop it around a millennial mindset because they are the uh, people coming into the marketplace. And, it, it, and, and <laughs> you know, there. Uh, I, I know there's been a lot of bad press on these guys, but you know what? Um, give them something to sink their teeth into. Give them a cause. Give them purpose, and they'll run with it. All right. What is that? How you handle millennial? How do you communicate with the millennial? Is there a different way of communicating? You, yeah, you've got to paint the picture in front of them, and exactly, and give them the why. Why am I doing this? It's not just a paycheck. It, it, you know, these guys all want to run out and save the world. Give them a reason why you're up at 2 a.m. sucking water out of a basement. You know, what is this doing exactly? And if you can uh, deliver that and communicate that effectively, you'll get a guy that is, it will wake up and will go to work at 2 in the morning. Let's get Tom Laskin. in. Tom, any advice for the uh, up-and-comers? Um, my best piece of advice is really... Um, really get to know what your clients want. Um, and that is communication, but it's, it's asking questions. It's even from the millennials, you know, how do you want us to communicate with you? What do you like best? We all think picking up the phone is the right way or sending the email is the right way. It might not be. And, and we all as a business, business owners have to accept <clears throat> that it might be a text, it might be an email, it might be a phone call. We don't know unless you ask. And I think that's so important. I think we take so much for granted um, because we feel we know the business, and, and yet it's the people that we're helping, uh, and, and they'll help us right back. All right. Well said. Cliff, I, I think, Joe, maybe we, we, we change tracks, and I think one of the, the, the big issues uh, in the industry that we really haven't talked about, probably the big white elephant, is program work and uh, PPAs and so on and so forth. What I'd like to do is kind of go around a room and just get a percentage. You know, I think we'll start with Tom McCann. You know, what percentage of your your business volume is program work related and, and which is not? Yeah, it's about, uh, I'd say about 50%. 50%. Tom McMahon in Illinois. Okay. Tom Laska. Uh, mine is uh, less than 2%. Okay. Okay. You, you, don't, you don't deal with the programs all no. heck of a lot, huh? All right. Understood. Um Mr. Nietzsche. Mr. Nietzsche. Grant, we're in the same boat. We're probably 2 to 3%, somewhere right in there that we do uh, program work. Okay. All right. 
Let's go to uh, Wes. Wes oh, Williams. We're probably doing about 20%. 
And I think if we just keep trying to turn ourselves into a commodity by competing over price rather than communicating with the customer, communicating with the insurance carriers, and communicating with our employees about what we're doing and why we're doing it, and providing that service and really, like Jacqueline said, communicate, communicate, communicate. And if, if our only communication is uh, line item price, then that's all we turn ourselves into. And, and I think we need to go back and bring the art back to restoration. Like we applied to water damage and we got so many ways to measure water damage, but there's a lot of different ways that we can provide that service for our customers through communication and, and bring it back from the price to the end product. Right. I keep hearing communication. I'm wondering, um, are there any programs out there to train your people or you on communication? There's plenty of water restoration courses, fire courses. Um, We're learning it right here. Here, the okay, the violas. Awesome. Uh, emotional intelligence is one of the classes that they're teaching people, and that's how much you care not how much you know, and I, I think this is a great spot to be able to come and learn how to communicate with people and, and really take care of each other. Okay, and that wasn't a setup, Jeff. That was. Uh, <laughs> and I also think well back to what we said when we talk about communication in my business. I mean, finding training for the tech level or the supervisor level, it's not that that um, available. The PMs have good courses. Uh, but even your project coordinators inside, and I mean, communication is a huge effort, all the way down to the account executives or the account managers who are trying to step in and help out where they need to. But the communication is about the processes and the procedures that we have to follow and make sure that we're checking in at these different checkpoints along the way. Um, and even back to your invoices going to your adjusters for payments. Um, I don't know, there's just got to be checkpoints all over the place to make sure that it's well thought out and communicated. I would like to make a plug for our host here, is that one of the things that we found is a benefit working with Viola Management is that they do offer, we request and we get techs come in and learn how to communicate, uh, supervisor training where we just don't throw them in. We, they help us to train on a biweekly basis for six months how to communicate, how to manage people, things that we don't, we just assume somebody knows. I don't remember anybody that taught me how to manage somebody. Right. I figured it out. Well, we're trying to, trying to, you know, shorten that learning curve and utilizing Violin has been great. One of the reasons why we have uh, brought them on board. All right. Let's go around. I think we've got one final question for everybody. What do you think, Cliff? Is, what are I think before that, there, there's, there's one thing that I want to ask you guys is, is it's a group. And I, I guess the first part of the question is the reason that the insurance companies want us to use all these air movers and all these dehumidifiers and, and maybe some of these air filtration devices and some of these meters and some of these cameras, why do they want us to use all this stuff? Where did they get the information that, that all of this was necessary. I think probably just liability and documentation. I mean, once you go in there and start moisture mapping and all that stuff, you're reading it as dry, and then the insurance company has that kind of, I mean, we got to turn it in on loss, so the insurance company has that documentation that the structure was dried or whatnot. Well, I, I'm not sure that you're... Uh, Tom McMahon there. Okay. I don't know that he understood the question. Okay. I, 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 what I'm trying to do is, is how do the insurance industries a 
awareness get heightened that we needed to do all that we needed to do all this complicated stuff for for water damage. Okay, Christopher, good. Go Tom Laska first. You know, I think mostly, um, I think manufacturers um, have gotten it there. I mean, they, they get a product out there, they've matured the market, and they're the ones selling back to the carriers that are saying, you need these meters to learn how to dry. Um, that's where I feel it's really come. Just the manufacturers just, just selling their wares um, and, and complicating it. Okay. Chris Yank? Hey, hang on one second. Go ahead. The, the follow-up question to that is, how did they miss, whose fault is it that fire restoration, you know, got minimized and was allowed to be minimized and that this is just dust that we're removing from this house? I mean, the information's been out there. I mean, it, it, you know, the manufacturers have to go to the insurance company and say, I have a product that's going to detoxify, you know, dioxin and, and, and furan. I mean, it's, I'm trying to figure out what, what the answer is. Because the way that this seems to be moving is you're getting to a situation where you'll all do the water damage, but God forbid there's a fire in a building. You know, no one wants to do it. Who is going to do that? I will. I got to believe that at the end of the day, uh, we're still need to be prepared to do from our basics, from what we know. We fire came out of a. Uh, of a need, it needed to happen, and it became because people were uh, uh, was able to actually show that you could restore a structure, and it would ultimately save dollars at the end. I understand that water, that mid, uh, sort of drying will do that, but let's face it, we've all seen things where somebody dries a two by two piece of drywall that cost twelve hundred bucks to dry when we could have just cut it out and left. We are, we as an industry have done a poor job, I believe, self-policing ourselves because there is a cost-benefit to everything we do. Jackie doesn't go through everything, but I know that she does a cost-benefit on what's going on. You have to because at the end of the day, you want to do right by your client. All right. All right. Let's go around. We've got one final question for everybody. I'd like to get everybody to weigh in on this one. What are the current opportunities? I know we've got people listening in that aren't here and maybe newer in the industry or maybe been around for a while and they're, they're struggling a little bit. What are the current opportunities you see in the restoration industry? Is there any way that you would kind of maybe uh, divert yourself to another area or, you know, do a better job of what you're doing now? What are, what are the uh, opportunities you see? Let's start with uh, Tom. Tom Lasker. Um, I, I think one of the best opportunities for most is, is really try and, and align um, yourself uh, to the commercial market. Um, I, I, again, it, 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 it might be a longer play, but at the end of the day, the commercial market's where it's at. Um, of all the discussion we've had today, um, there, there's a lot more opportunity there um, in, in all areas. Uh, and I just think that's, that's the way to go. There's, there's less headaches. Um, it might be a little more speed, might be a little bit bigger, but there's less headaches at the end of the day. Grant Nietzsche. Uh, I would say I would just say great customer service. I said at the end of the day, I don't think if you pro are providing great customer service, I don't think that ever goes out of style. And I think there will always be a need for that. So I think if you can push great customer service, you'll you'll always uh, find someone that is willing to hire you. All right, let's go to uh, Wes. Wes Williams. Sorry, Wes. I think one of the things uh, delivering information to the insurance company. 
so they can uh, quickly, so they can determine and answer questions if a, if a loss is covered, if it's an insured peril, they can carry on with the repairs or whatever is required or deny the loss depending on the, the whatever is happening at that particular time on that site. And if we can get that information to them quickly, quicker answers, the, the flow of information, you know, communication, same thing, getting them information so they can do their job more effectively. What about like remote monitoring? Do you do any of that? Is that catching on at all? I mean, is that something that could help get the information you know, to them? We, we use uh, uh, some software that allows us to be on site and deliver pictures immediately to uh, the adjuster. And in fact, we can walk around the room and show them exactly what's going on. And what that does is it removes any doubt as to what the degree of the loss is and how, how extensive the loss is. And they can set reserves for themselves. These are all pressure points for adjusters setting reserves on job losses so that their, uh, their management can be involved in the process of knowing how much a job is worth and uh, how many losses and, you know, what the uh, degree of the losses. That's a great point. We're talking a lot about communication in within the company and within with customers, but communication with the insurance company is, a, I think that's a very good point for people. Uh, let's go to Lee King. Uh, it's a bit counterintuitive to say areas that you could grow, but what we found is the key, I believe, for the future of our company is to not try to do more things and offer more services, but try to do what we really can do well and do it better and just focus on our core services and not try to be everything to everybody because there's certain things that we're just not going to be good at, we're not going to be focused on, and uh, really focusing in with uh, laser attention on what we do well. And you have those protocols in place, the standard operating procedures, you don't have to have, you know, you've got them focused in on one thing. I like that, Lee. Chris Anchor. I think our biggest opportunity is to continue to build trust um, with everybody that we do business with. And, and there's a lot of different people that we touch in our industry, and I think through, you know, good communication and telling an accurate story full of integrity that takes the risk out for the insured and the insurer and, and protects our risk and communicate that very, very well, we'll continue to build trust and be a trusted advisor for everybody and take care of our... Thank you, Chris. Jacqueline Carter, Carpenter, I'm sorry. Um, I think you're on to something with the trusted advisor role. Uh, the commercial work is definitely where it is, and, and I think as these new companies come in, they're all going to start just doing residential, and as a company matures, they start to move up to the commercial world. And I think maybe eventually we might be an, be an interesting split between the two worlds. Uh, but with commercial work, you are their trusted advisor, and a contaminant's a contaminant. And we appreciate what you're saying, Lee. You know, stick to what you're good, you're good at. But we all know whether it's a, a piece of char or mold spore or an asbestos fiber or whatever it is, it's still a contaminant in a space. We do our engineering controls and we can re remove it. It could be a virus or a bacteria staff outbreak in a commercial space or hospital and be a solution for that situation and bring in help if you need it, bring in experts and solve their problem. Okay, I want to go over to uh, Tom McMahon and then we're going to finish with Scott Stamper. And then I would say uh, education, uh, both for your clients and the carrier or whoever you're working for. Um, I don't think there's ever enough education. Um, is there a source for educating the client? 
other than your own people and you? Uh, I would say, unfortunately, it's Google. But, um, <laughs> and that's a problem, huh? Yeah, it's a big problem. But, no, I would say uh, it's, it's going to be us as the business owner and business managers. Let's go to a past president of RIA, Scott Stamper. Is that where maybe RIA could help out a little bit? Potentially. I think uh, RIA has you know, some paths, especially with uh, working on the fire standard and getting some standards there that I think will help the whole industry lead involved with that. But as far as adding additional services or changes, I think, you know, everybody here talked about commercial. When you can reduce drying to telling what a computer tells you to put in, you're reducing what the value of that's going to be long term. So what I look at is I look for things that uh, Jacqueline mentioned about uh, viral, viral contamination. I started a network that is really focused on allowing to increase the the knowledge and base that you can walk into a pharmaceutical, you can walk into a biotech company. There's not a whole lot of people that can do that in this world. Hospitals and be able, well, a lot of people go after hospitals, but it's a whole different beast. I'm talking about do it properly because cross-contamination, there's not enough education about it. There's not that many people that would ever get that opportunity. And I think that diversification, making yourself having a key, you know, something that sets you apart from everybody else, I think is, is going to be key to get this stuff because if you're just an old timer who's been in the business who now you can dry commercial buildings, uh, eventually we'll run you over just because we're looking to make sure that we're there for what you need today and looking in the future for next year, two years down the road because so much has changed. All right. Cliff, any final thoughts from you? I'm good. Cliff is good. This is Radio Joe Hughes saying thank you to Lee King, Wes Williams. Scott Stamper, Tom Laska, Chris Yanker, Jacqueline Carpenter, Grant Nietzsche, Tom McMahon, and Jeff Jones. Thanks for hosting us. I didn't get a chance to ask you any questions. But, uh, and, of course, Chuck Viola. Uh, also, of course, my co-host, the CMIC. Uh, John, you got to have faith at the controls. Great job. Most importantly, our growing group of loyal listeners. Please come back next Friday at noon for the next broadcast of IAQ Radio. For IAQ Radio, I'm Spike Real saying thanks for listening.